You guys looked at the news recently? Every day. Every day, you're confronted with the picture of war. We in Canada kind of think, oh, the Afghanistan war is done. In fact, we'll see here, Afghanistan is still continuing with the American troops. There's death there weekly. It's a lot of danger being faced by troops from America every day. There's war in Syria. We have Assad and the different forces. And, and, and even there, we see like Russia and America kind of lining in different places. It's, it's a scary p- picture, what's happening in Syria, which, by the way, was a very important Christian center for the beginning and the spread of the gospel. It's where Paul launches his ministry from. We see ISIS kind of having this territory all through Iraq and Syria. We know that uh, up here, this is a picture of the territory of the red, but we know Mosul has just been taken back by Iraqi troops. This is every day we're looking at war. And then we have another picture of North Korea. I don't know if anything frightens you even more than that. The idea of a nuclear war still hovering in 2017. It's 2017, yes. And yet humanity still faces this crisis. I saw this on the internet. Where in the world could World War III break out this year? Baltic states and Ukraine. We know there's some issues with Crimea and what's going on with Russia and the West. Have what's going on in Syria, North Korea. And then in Taiwan, in the South China Sea, there's a lot of battles happening between the West and China over some territory as well. I know about you, when I look at this, it's easy for fear to kind of well up in me. It's easy for me to start to, to worry and get afraid. And then kind of the, the kind of the response can often be, okay, but we have military strength. Let's take heart. We have more nukes than them. Hey, the USA is still the most powerful nation in the world, and they're going to protect us because we're really right beside them. Isn't it kind of easy to think of ourselves, okay, we're going to rely on our military might. This will help us survive. And this isn't a shot against military and any of that. This idea, the human idea to rely upon our own ability to wage war. And maybe we will win wars. But winning wars still means millions dead. Like we won World War II, we say, but millions dead. And yet, it's so easy for us as humans to think, Let's make sure that our dad can beat up their dad. Let's make sure that we have the ability to destroy. And my question is, should we rely as Christians, should we be thinking about uh, the military might of the West as kind of our savior? When we start to dig into the Bible, we've been talking about war and the warrior God picture that we often have of Yahweh and who he is. And, And what we start to realize, you start to really dig into the text We saw last week, some of the texts, you start to realize, wait a second, God's kind of flipping things. He doesn't let David build the temple because he has bloody hands. There's there's a sense in which God doesn't love violence. And what he really doesn't love is our reliance on human violence. 
He does not want us to rely on human violence, to trust in human violence. Is Yahweh primarily a God of war or a God of peace, we've been asking? And we ask the question, is, is religious inherently violent? And we say, well, religion can lead to violence, but we also see a place like North Korea, and we recognize, oh, that's not a religious country, and yet the possibility of violence is, is very strong there. So when we ask ourselves this question, we start to have to look at what is the main message of Scripture when it comes to warfare? And I want to point out a passage in Zechariah 4, 6. And so he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Not by might or power, but by my spirit. This is the theme of Yahweh when we're looking at warfare. God does not want his people to rely on violence. If God was a, a war God primarily, and I'm not saying there's no war text, we've talked a little bit about that, but if that was his main thrust in the Old Testament even, I want to ask the question, why? Why in the world would God ask us to use a pea shooter? I have a picture here. You say, what are you talking about? If you actually start to look through the text, you start to realize God is often undercutting Warfare, weapons, violence. And he's actually calling his people to use pea shooters in their warfare. What do you mean? How does that work? What do you mean? Well, when he says to rely on his strength and his spirit, he's not just saying that as kind of a nice catch-all. He's all rely on my spirit. He says, actually, I'm going to make you rely on the spirit of God and not on human weapons. And he does it several times. I'll start to unpack this. We begin with the picture of a story in uh, the book of Judges uh, 7 and 8. This is Gideon. Do you remember the story of Gideon? Gideon is this reluctant warrior, by the way, who is called to defend Israel against the nations who are attacking. And he begins, he starts to drum up a war. He's like, okay, gather the troops, gather the troops. And he ends up getting 32,000 troops. He's like, ah, that's not... Not too bad, not, not a lot. And God looks at the 32,000 troops. He's like, no, I don't like this at all. And now in the ancient Near East, the reason that God would not like it, he'd be like, no, no, we need more. More troops equals winning. Is this how you serve me? Only, you can only get 32,000? We need more. That's how humans think, right? With warfare, more people, you win. Instead, Yahweh doesn't like, he looks at it, he says, no, I don't like this army. Just go ask them, ask them, hey, do any of you have any fear? Are any of you afraid? You know, a little tinge of fear going to war? It's a pretty interesting question to ask people who are about to go, maybe have their lives slain on the battlefield. Hey, are you, are you a little afraid you might die? If any of them are afraid, just say, yeah, don't worry about it. You can go home. In our system, we have a thing called being AWOL, right? Away without leave. If you leave the army, you are in trouble. You go to prison, you're in big trouble. Here it's like, hey, who feels like fighting? Oh, you don't? Go ahead, go home. And so the army, surprisingly, is chopped to two-thirds. Oh, now we only have 10,000 warriors. 
because I guess 20,000 had a little bit of fear. And then Yahweh looks at it and he says, ah, actually, still, I don't like this. I don't like this idea of you going in with 10,000 warriors against a giant army because you're going to rely on your army. You're going to think that your army is your safety. And so he says, how about you have them drink from water? Have them all go down to the, the lake, have a little drink, and just watch how they drink. And if anyone gets down on the ground and starts kind of lapping it up, if they're laying on the ground, then you just get rid of them. What we want is the people who are crouching. And all of a sudden, the army goes from 30,000 to 300 people. And you're always like, here we go, good to go. Imagine Gideon's heart at this time. Like, God, are you kidding me? How in the world am I supposed to win a war with 300 and we know the end of the story that Yahweh brings victory. And what he's trying to say to his people is, listen, you cannot rely on human military strength. I don't want you to hope in that. That's not how God works. And then God goes further. We see elsewhere in Scripture that God does something really strange as well. God actually calls Israel to reject WMDs. What are you talking about? What, what does WMD stand for? Weapons of Mass Destruction. You're probably going, what are you talking about, Cyril? They didn't have any nuclear bombs back then or giant weapons of, of mass destruction. They had their own version of weapons of mass destruction in that day and age. We're not talking about bombs, explosives, but they had some weapons that were known that day that would just slaughter the battlefield. What do you think they were? I heard it. Chariots. The chariot. The development of war horses and chariots is a huge episode in human warfare in the ancient Near East. Why, why do you think, why would chariots and horses be a form of weapon of mass destruction back then? The idea is why, why would they be so powerful? Speed. So much faster. You have troops kind of running and you're just, you're just going quick. Anything else you can think about? Maybe watch Gladiator, some of these movies. Any other things you can think about that wep the chariots would, would form a, a very powerful weapon? The wheels. And they put the, the swords on the sides, right? And they just roll through people. Kind of like a tank. They're, they're basically the, the ancient equivalent of a tank. Anything else you can think of that might help? Well, you had multiple ways of killing people. The driver would actually be holding the reins of it, and he'd, be, he'd have a machete. And anything close, he'd just be chopping down as he drove by very quickly. It's hard to, to get a sword in there. It just, it just gets knocked away, and he's just chopping at people. Not only that, they'd have, on the back, they'd have these archers. And these archers were devastating on the field. First of all, they're very difficult to hit because in the old days, uh, your, your archers, um, you either have to have them far away and they're just kind of like shooting. Those, those missiles coming from a high and far away, they're not very accurate. And they're not really that hard. 
comparatively speaking. Now, if I'm trying to shoot an arrow, like we had a sniper who, like, I think it was a couple, what was it, a couple thousand kilometers. Canada now holds the record for a sniper. If you're trying to shoot an arrow far away, it's not going to be as, have as much impact. If you pull an arrow and you're like front rows, point blank, that's a kill. So these chariots were these deadly forces of mass destruction in those days. You were afraid of the chariots. They would come close, they'd be fast, they'd get you hard. All kinds of people dead. When you look at the old pictures of uh, the, the ancient warfare, you just see tons of people in the pictures with, with arrows through them on the ground. The Egyptians loved pastoring that all over their different monuments because they had the chariots. They were, and, and their war horses, by the way, were really strong too, right? I don't know if you've ever seen a, a police horse up close. Should I try to pet them? Should I try to pet a police horse? It's not a good thing to do. I tried once. I was, oh, they're not friendly. And those aren't war horses. Those are police horses. We're talking like horses that would club you, that knew how to kill human beings. These are devastating weapons of mass destruction. And they're really treasured. We see in, uh, uh, in Egypt, Pharaoh Thutmose III boasts of capturing 2,041 war house horses after the Battle of Megiddo. By the way, Megiddo, Har Megiddo, is where we get Armageddon from, the great plains where the battles, the last battles will happen. This is in northern Israel. And he's saying, hey, we went to war and we captured all these horses. They, they bragged about it. Sargon II, who's a Syrian king, he says, I besieged and I conquered Samaria. I took as booty 27,000 people who lived there and I gathered 50 chariots from them. This is something you want. You want to gather your chariots. You want your tanks. You want your missiles. You want your chariots. That's how you know that you are a powerful army. Just like North Korea is like, I want nukes. I need nukes and then I can be a powerful army. This is what the, the nations of the play. We need chariots. If we get ourselves some chariots. We're in the game. So what does Yahweh do with chariots? Let's look at the law. This is the law for the king in Deuteronomy that Yahweh writes to his kings. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself to make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. You can't be getting war horses if you're the king of Israel. God doesn't want them. You're not allowed to stockpile weapons of mass destruction. It's actually one of the, the rules, one of the laws of Yahweh. That's a really interesting war uh, law, isn't it? I don't want you having 30,000 troops. I don't want you having chariots. Yahweh, what are you doing? That is a very strange war god. Not only that, we see what he does when chariots can, could come into their possessions. We see this in Joshua, um, uh, chapter 11, 4 to 6. Joshua is one of, the, one of the, the places where we have the most difficult text for warfare. But let me just read this to you. They, this is a coalition of armies that are attacking Israel, came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots. You hear that phrase a lot, horses and chariots, all the, all the time through the Old Testament when they're fighting. A huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So you have this army coming, and they're coming with their weapons of mass destruction. They got the chariots, they got their horses, and they're coming. And it's, it's, it's a fearful moment for the, the people of Israel. What are we going to do? Well, the Lord says this to them. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand 
all of them slain over to Israel. Don't be worried about them. I'm God. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. We just saw Pharaoh and the Assyrian Empire emperor both say, look how many, how many chariots I got in my battle. And for some reason, Yahweh does not want them gathering and collecting them. He actually says, burn them. Get rid of them. We don't want those. Why? There's no other God in the ancient Near East that has any command, anything like this. Yahweh, what are you doing? What are you saying? What's your kind of subversive point here? Now, when we talk about this reducing weapons of mass destruction passage, killing the, uh, hamstringing, sorry, not killing, hamstringing the horses, notice he doesn't say kill them, and burning the chariots. I think my initial reaction is kind of the, my inner PETA voice, right? You're like, whoa, animal cruelty. I hope a lot of you have similar things. Like, oh, that's, kind of a, that's kind of a mean thing to do to horses, isn't it? How could Yahweh ask us to hamstring horses? That seems like cruelty to animals. Disgusting, Yahweh. Now, the ancient Near East is also is doing the opposite question. They're like, what are you talking? Why would in that world would you hamstring your horses? These are great military weapons. You have them in your hands. So we're both asking different, like, this is, this is weird. Why would Yahweh ask this? Brueggemann, who's a great writer, says that these horses and chariots, he says they're, they're instruments of oppression and domination. And when we start to look at this, we start to, why, why would God do this to the horses? This would hurt, ouch, right? That would hurt. You're hurting the animals. Why do you, let me ask, why do you think? Why would Yahweh, in which ways could this be in any way seen as a good thing to hamstring horses? What's that? No one could have them. And I, I want to suggest maybe that these horses might be able to have a longer life. Yeah, they're hamstrung. And we have that happening in racing all the time when the horse gets hurt, right? And then sometimes they put them down. But maybe these horses could actually be used in other ways in domestic farming. They, have, they actually can actually have a life that might not be as short. So we look at it as like this great evil, perhaps the cruelty to animals. But at that time, maybe that horse has a better life because of this. That's a lot to think about when you're looking at the Old Testament, isn't it? And trying to balance it, like, how do I look at it? How do they look at it? And what's Yahweh doing with that? Hopefully these horses will no longer be able to be part of warfare and weaponry and, and part of the killing. It's kind of like uh, when you see in the Old Testament, it talks about taking um, uh, swords and turning them to plowshares. Take a war horse and turning them into something that might be a little more useful and more aligned with their purpose in creation. Don't stockpile horses and chariots, Israel. Do not depend upon them. And all the other nations are going, this is the stupidest war plan ever. Your war God is not very good. And we're thinking, no, no, he is very good. No reliance on violence. Sounds like a stupid war plan, but it is a picture of where God is trying to take humanity. 
He always wanted to reduce the mass killings. Now, I'll continue on. A third thing that helps us see this picture of not relying on uh, our own human strength, our own human violence, is that God starts to use unconventional non-military weapons. The first thing he uses is he, to help deliver Israel from Egypt. Does he have them take up swords and destroy and cut down their oppressors? Now he uses a staff, a little shepherd's staff. That's very interesting. It actually says in Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. You will be still. You just, you chill. God is who you rely upon, not your own power. In the book of uh, Judges, we see Deborah, and there's this great war coming, and actually the horses and the chariots are coming, and they're like, oh no, what are we going to do? And then God sends rain and mud, and now the horses are rendered ineffective. God got it. We see uh, an interesting passage in the book of Judges where um, there is this, this guy named Jael, and he's a great warrior. He's the, he's the general of the opposing army. And he ends up getting killed by a woman who's considered weaker in a tent peg. Violet. But it's this interesting in using that which God would say, this is not what you're expecting for military strength. It's not like some general of Israel takes down the general. He uses a tent peg. With Joshua, there's a war where it's basically Joshua has to make sure his hands are up, honoring God. Why? Rely on God for your survival. Not on your own strength. Shamgar has a, an ox goad. You know what ox goad is? We, we would call it like a cowpoke. It's like the thing to keep the ox going. That's his, like God's like, use that. Samson uses a jawbone of a donkey, which that one actually looks kind of scary, actually. But, but he uses an animal jaw. Like time and time again, David, hey, David, you can use this giant king's sword and his spear and this armor. And he says, no, I'm going to use my sling that I use against the wolves. God asks Israel time and time again, use a pea shooter, not an AK-47. It's very interesting. Now, what does this say? And I, I don't know... Part of me kind of goes, I'm trying to figure out why does God do this? I think clearly it just says, God says, don't trust in weapons. Trusting in, in human power is not the way to go. You need to have greater faith in God. And through the use of weaker weapons, God's kind of making them do this. You have to trust me. I'm going to make you trust me because you're not very good at trusting me. So here's some rules that I'm going to lay down that are going to make it so that you recognize who I am and what you need. And it's also limiting, I say, expansionist violence. He's trying to stop Israel from wanting to be an empire like Pharaoh, like Assyria. You're not gonna, you're not, you don't get to use the tools of the empire. I want you to be my people and represent who I am. But I am not a God who just goes about destroying everyone with horses and chariots. Secondly, the destruction of the weapons of mass destruction and the use of weaker weapons, I think maybe hint at a preferred way of war. 
It's kind of like what we have at the Geneva Convention. There's like weapons where like, you can't use sarin gas. Yeah, you can kill a lot, but we're, you're, you're not, we recognize ethically, this is something that we need to make sure, even in war, there's kind of limits. So you're always kind of pushing us in these directions, which long before you have the Geneva Convention, you have something already hinted at by Yahweh. But their faith is so low that they can't even get these little, little, the big laws, never mind the, the little ones. And so he gives us another picture, and this is the, fi- the final one I want to help you kind of look at in terms of this, the, the idea of, of God saying, rely on me, not on war. This is in 2 Kings, and what he does is he says, I'm going to kill them with kindness. My war will be anti-war. My weapon will be a great feast. And when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, and Aram, the country, the nation, army with horses and chariots, notice, horses and chariots, surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do, the servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You can imagine the servant like, looking around like, it's me and you. Do you <laughs> what are you talking about, man? And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Notice he's, he's opening the eyes. He's spiritually blinded here. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's interesting. In the spiritual realm, Elisha's covered. Elisha doesn't need to be afraid. Why? Because he has Yahweh. And so I just, that's one of my prayers for us. Open my eyes, Lord. Let me see your power and your reality and trust in you, not in our human strength. And then the enemy came towards them. Elisha prayed to the Lord. Now this is the opposite prayer. Notice the first one's open your eyes, Lord. This one's the opposite. Strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. And Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. By the way, they're looking for him. So he's technically not lying. It's kind of a, I will lead you to to him. And he led them to Samaria, where is the king of Israel. And as they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they looked. And there they were, inside Samaria. And when the king of Israel saw this, I I love this. You can almost see he's he's a giddy little boy. He asked Elijah, shall I kill him, my father? Shall I kill him? Can I kill him? Can I kill him? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? These are my prisoners. 
set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. What? Is that how you do war when you're a follower of Yahweh? And so he prepared a great feast for them. And after that, they finished eating and drinking. He sent them away. Come back another day. And they returned to their master. And so the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Isn't that interesting? Again, Yahweh's using a new paradigm, a new picture of how we rely upon God. Yahweh has enough armies, has enough power upstairs that he can confront anything down here. He shames them a bit. He sends them home. And because of this kindness, he's kind of raining down. We hear it before, like hot coals on their heads from the Proverbs, right? Love your enemies, we hear Jesus say. This is the strangest of Yahweh, the Old Testament God. And I'm trying to give you this picture because we often hear... Yahweh, the bloodthirsty God. And there's, there's texts where there's warfare, and, and I, I showed one before. It's, it's not easy. But I want us to kind of get, is, is that the main picture of Yahweh in the Old Testament? No, there's these subversive pictures. You start to get the pictures. Yahweh is a different type of God, even in the Old Testament. A great feast does them in. So again, if Yahweh is primarily a God of war, why does he reduce the troops? Why does he reduce weapons of mass destruction? Why does he use weaker weapons? And why does he use nonviolence? This Yahweh is very different than typical war gods. He's giving us a picture of the future. And I don't think we're probably even right there yet, are we? We're in a place still where I'm definitely not a person saying, oh, we need to disband the army. And, uh, but it's just do we trust in ourselves or do we trust in Yahweh? That's the question the church has to ask itself. Maybe you say a nation has a right to defend itself, but is that really going to get it done? What are we trusting in? This is a culture that glorifies war. They are happy to kill. This is like the warriors, like, they're not like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, there's no, like, this is, the, this is a culture when you kill or be killed, and you're like, I am the killer. And here we have Yahweh going, we're trying to move you in a different way, folks. And I think as Christians, we need to come to know this God, this, this Yahweh, especially in the context of what we see in the world today. Let's be careful of trusting in ourselves. If Yahweh is primarily a war God, I want to show you a passage that I think is really important because sometimes we can get into this like, God loves me, my country, we are God's people. We are. It's really easy to, to be like, my nation equals God's position. Anything my nation does is what God wants. Let me read this from Joshua. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Now, by the way, Joshua's around Jericho right now. He's kind of looking at it. He's, he's preparing a siege and he's kind of figuring out what's going on. But he's by himself and all of a sudden he sees this guy with a sword drawn, this, this mighty warrior, a man standing in front of him with his sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and said, are you for, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Who are you playing with? Whose team are you on? Neither, he replied. 
But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. That's a very interesting passage. You would think like, hey, I'm Israel. I'm Joshua. I'm the commander of, of Israel. So I'm God's people. You're on my team. You're either with God and me. Or, and he's like, no, no, no. That's not how it works. I'm with God. And you don't equal God. You're Joshua. I'm on God's team. Which is interesting. We know Israel is the people of God. And we know that Israel is defended by God. But the point is very clear. God is above all of this nations bickering, fighting, and saying who's... Now, of course, as a country, we're happy to be Canadians, and, and there's so much uh, joy we have for being here, and I'm not trying to disparage my own um, loyalty to my country, but, but my point is, my loyalty to God is first. Because God, ultimately, is the master of all the nations, and we got to get that clear. I serve God first. I'm on God's team. And God has his own plans. God has his own picture of what he wants to have happen. And I better be on side when that comes. God isn't serving Israel. He's not serving the USA. He, he is the one whom we are serving. There should be no reliance on human violence. And so I hope we've put some pictures together of the first time we talked about this. We we're talking about the New Testament and Jesus, his, his pictures where he talks about loving enemies. He's, he's, he's undercutting this human bent towards violence. And then we talked about the Old Testament the last two weeks. We've been seeing that there's subversive text. There's text that makes us re-question this, this whole picture of a war God. And we put them together... In prayer, we start to recognize as Christians, we are at the service of God and he calls us to love our enemies. That's the picture. That's the call. That's who we are as followers of Jesus. When we talk today about taking the Lord's table, I hope we keep this in mind. Jesus found himself in a nation that was under oppression from a dictatorial nation, a nation that had killed many, the Romans. And his people, his people of the nation Israel saw him and said, you're, my, you're our king. Therefore, as king, we want you to pick up weapons and smite the Romans with your might. But instead, Jesus said, I'm going to kill them with kindness. The Roman Empire will come to acknowledge God but it's not going to be by the sword. It's going to be by the cross. And so he took bread and he broke it and he said to us, this is my body broken for you to bring peace. This is my blood shed by violence to do away with violence once and for all. So often as you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, we remember that Christ died for our sin, that we are forgiven, we are saved, and we are now part of the people, 
part of the army of the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these snippets of a new reality which you are causing to interfere with our human way of violence. And so we pray that as Christians, we would not ever trust in chariots. We would not trust in horses. We would not trust in violence and weapons. We would trust in you. We would trust in the work that you did through Jesus Christ and that he will bring peace to the earth, a shalom, a wholeness, a restoration, when all people of all tongues and all nations will come together and worship you through the work that he did. In Jesus' name, amen.